Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning and welcome to Easter. We're so glad that you're joining us to celebrate the physical resurrection of Jesus. We're joining hundreds of millions, actually billions of people today, declaring in a hopeless situation, in a difficult year, that actually there's hope because Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if you're a guest today, if you're from another faith or no faith at all, or you were invited by a friend or family member, or you just found us online, you are most welcome today too. Now, if you read the Easter story closely in the Gospels, I know some of you have and some of you haven't, there are three types of people trying to grapple with life, but actually more trying to grapple with loss. You've got a woman named Mary Magdalene who literally incarnates grief and loss. You've got the disciples living, interestingly, in a lockdown moment who are marked by fear and trying to control sort of what's next. And then you've got a guy named Thomas He's one of the disciples who was hanging out by himself. Thomas is nicknamed Doubting Thomas by a lot of people, but it's deeper than that. He's marked by cynical suspicion. And yet, as we're going to see, Jesus coming back to life changes every single one of them. Oh, and could change every single one of us. We're going to enter the Easter story back on Good Friday. Jesus is still dead. And now the question, what to do with his body? Well, we find the answer in John 19.38. Now, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took Jesus' body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Now, to get Jesus' body off the cross would have been, well, a little gross and very difficult. They would have had to flex his arms in order to deal with the rigor mortis. The condition would have been strong since the temperature had dropped already and the terrible physical exertion Jesus would have gone through before he died. After pulling his arms down from the V position, they would wash his body and they would anoint his body with oil. It says this in verse 39, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Now, now this is really important, especially again, if you're a seeker or skeptic. First, 75 pounds of spice are mixed into the linens. Then his body is tightly wrapped. Here's how one historian helps us uncover this. He said, the burial practices of the Jews are incredibly distinctive at this moment. The Egyptians embalmed their dead. Most of you know that. In Roman or Greek culture, they tended to cremate the dead. But in Jewish culture, neither was done. Rather, the dead were wrapped in linen swaddling cloths. There's the connection to Christmas, by the way. And they would mix those the spices into the cloths and they would tightly wrap the body. And the body was placed on its back without coffins in tombs. They were not completely wrapped, however. The dead were wrapped, but the face and neck and upper part of the shoulders were left bare. Typically, a body uh, <coughs> had arms folded cross-like across their torso, and the head was wrapped separately with a cloth twirled around like a turban. The grave clothes did not cover the body's face. Now, this is so important because this is going to explain one of the reasons why the resurrection is historically true, and it's going to explain John's reaction when he sees it. So it says in verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, 
And in the garden, there was a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid in. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the the tomb was nearby, they just laid Jesus there. So he's placed in a cave carved out of limestone. He'd be left there to decompose on what they called a burial shelf. Then family and friends would come back after an extended period of time. They'd get the bones and put them in what they now call a bone box. Now, if you read the gospel accounts on on the Sunday morning, the very first Easter Sunday, a group of women, four women came out to actually wrap Jesus's body in spices because they don't know uh, Nicodemus already did that. And, And though one's name is Joanna and there's Mary's here and there, the one that John specifically focuses on is Mary Magdalene. Now, if she was here today, she would tell you in some fashion that she had lived two very different lives. It was only two and a half years earlier. It never went a day where she did not feel evil, a darkness. Voices that were in her that were more than psychological, were were more than situational, actually were not mental illness. They were evil. They were non-human. They were demonic. And then she had met Jesus, and Jesus had commanded the demonic to leave, and seven demonic beings left her, and she was in her full right mind. She became one of Jesus' closest followers, And she was a woman of great wealth, by the way, and supported Jesus's ministry. And she'd say this savior, this merciful leader, this grace-filled teacher who changed the very trajectory of her life, the one that she thought is more than teacher, but might be the Messiah, the Son of God, had suddenly and forcibly been executed and killed. So now it's the first Easter Sunday morning. There's a knock on the door. Her and a group of women gather to go take care of Jesus's body. They had followed him, they'd cared for him, they'd watched him die, and now they wanna do this one last, uh, last act of respect. It says in John 21, early in the first day of the week while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, if you read all the other gospel accounts, the, the picture is filled in, but the stone would have weighed somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds. And the other Gospels tell us there were guards there, not mall cops, by the way. Those assigned to the grave were trained soldiers, the special forces of their day. By the time Mary Magdalene gets there, the stone is moved, and of course, the guards are gone. And this does not feel right. One older preacher really got it right when he said, can you imagine that you just buried your spouse or a friend of yours or even your child last week? All the pain, all the trauma, and you decide to come back to talk maybe to reflect, to lay some flowers. And when you arrive at the grave, dirt is everywhere, the coffin is lying open beside the hole, and the body is missing. I mean, the shock, the anger, the horror, we'd all be asking, why would anyone do such an evil thing? Well, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of his tomb and we don't know where they've placed him. So Peter and John started running to the tomb. Both were running, but John outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now I want you to pause and and, and I want you to catch this. We're gonna hear the word or the phrase to see or look multiple times here. And in Greek, there are six different verbs and meanings to see or to look. And it matters because it's going to show us what's taking place. Verse 5, John bent over and looked, there it is, in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Now, looked here means he just saw. Plain looking, he saw, but he did not understand. 
he did not going he did not go into the tomb but then it says Simon Peter verse 6 came along behind him and went right into the tomb classic Peter he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head the cloth was laying in its place separated from the linen now the word saw here is different it means to discern to consider And when it says there, he saw it there, it's where we get our word theater from. So Peter took a long, careful, good look. He's investigating. This mystery is being probed. Is this fake? Is this real? I will not just look out. I'm going to find out. See, if someone had taken the body, they would have taken everything. The spices, the the clothes, everything. They'd just take the body out because they're so tightly wrapped. Or if they had unwrapped the body, all the spices would have been everywhere and the headcloth would have been here and there was actually a piece that would help keep the chin up and that would be there. They'd be thrown aside. But weirdly enough, see the word separate? It's like they run in and the headcloth is where it should be and and then the little piece that keeps the, the, the chin up, that's there and the linens are there and the 75 pounds of spice are there. Everything's in its proper place, unmoved, except the body is like evaporated in the middle of it. Well, it says that finally John comes in. Verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. Now, this saw in Greek means to understand. He got it. He believed. It clicked. So what did John believe? That Jesus was gone, that his body was stolen? No, no. He believed in the resurrection. John was the first in the world to believe that Jesus had physically, not just spiritually, physically risen again. The linens were not moved. The headpiece was not moved. The spice is all there. But it's like his body just was gone. Jesus has risen. He's risen. He's physically alive. And the only reason why the stone is gone is so we can see Jesus is gone. So watch this. John says yes. Peter does not understand and does not believe. And Mary comes back to the scene again. It says in verse 11, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. By this point, John and Peter have left. She's weeping, sobbing, wailing. Actually, this is a style of crying that you see in many cultures, including the Middle East. It's the Eastern death wail. It comes from the broken heart. As she's she's weeping, She bent over to look into the tomb again, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Well, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. It's like in this moment, the angel's like, no, 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 just look behind you. No, no, not here, there, just look behind you. See, suddenly another person's at the tomb and asks the same question the angels ask. Woman, Why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Oh, and then it happened. Jesus said Mary's name. It's that voice. (laughs) That voice that called her, that same voice that commanded evil to leave, the same voice that said you're forgiven. It had to be him, Mary. She turned around and she cried out in Aramaic, Teacher, See, John is the first to believe, but Mary is the first to see. And and don't miss this, because if you're building a lie in Middle Eastern culture, you don't make your first eyewitness a woman. 
Because in this culture, women were not only second class. In this culture, women legally were not to be trusted in a court case like a man. Actually, much of the time would be thrown out if it was a woman's testimony. And so again, if you're going to build the greatest lie in history, you don't make the first witness a woman. (laughs) But see, that's always God's point. God always shows up in the unexpected ways to the unexpected people. I mean, actually, Mary Magdalene is the fulfillment of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5, 3, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. So she turns around and she knows him and she runs at Jesus and she hugs him with her whole body. She bear hugs him. And Jesus' response is not what we expect. He's not rude or unkind, but he says, hey, could you stop clinging to me? He's not saying, oh, you're way too clingy. No, no, no. He says, don't hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go and send to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. See, Jesus' relationship with his followers now has to change. Mary and the disciples, all of his first followers, want to physically cling on to him. But now this has to give way to something new. It now has to be a relationship based on faith. Notice what Jesus really says. Stop holding on to me. Go and tell. Deep grief is replaced suddenly and unexpectedly by great joy. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them, uh, and she told them that he had said these things to her. I saw him. I touched him. I bear hugged him. And, and guys, it's true. Now, if you read Luke, Mark, and Matthew, There are multiple trips and multiple retellings. Some like John believe and Mary believe. They say yes, Peter says maybe, but the rest just sit there and don't believe. They're marked by fear. See, many of them thought that they were next. We rarely think about this, but the 11 thought they would be rounded up and stoned or crucified just like Jesus. They're terrified that they're going to have the same fate as Jesus. That's why in the very first Easter Sunday morning, there's no shouting or no singing or no celebration Uh, they're living in lockdown. We thought we were the first ones to live through it. No, no, they are. Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And then Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus stood among them. Just pause. The guy they followed, the guy they gave up their jobs for, the guy that taught like no other, the guy that cast out demons with a word, the teacher that just with a look or a touch or a word healed people, the rabbi that tens of thousands had listened to, the one they laughed with and traveled with and ate with, the one they confessed as Messiah, the one they had run away from, the one they had abandoned, the one some of them had even denied, the one who had been tortured in the most inhuman ways, the one who had been executed by crucifixion, the one they had lost all hope in is suddenly physically standing with them just like the old days. And before they can scream or speak or run or hide before anything, adrenaline flowing, goosebumps rippling across their whole body, Jesus says what God and angels always say when heaven and earth meet, when reality is really there. Peace be with you. Just breathe, everyone. It's me. It's going to be okay, guys. We talked about this. Why are you freaking out? Do not fear. Uh, But there's more. This isn't just greeting or comfort. He says peace, shalom, wholeness. In Luke's account, Luke uses this word to describe salvation. And now here in this moment, that literally has rippled throughout history, they're at the crossroads of faith. Trepidation, panic, loss of hope, or peace. What would mark them? 
I love how the Bible does not lie. It does not make up things. It doesn't just bumper stickers and everything's excellent. No, it doesn't give us easy face. faith. It honestly wades into our frailty, into our humanity. So they react like we all would react. I love in the Luke account, it says in this Luke 24, 38, why are you so troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Why are you freaking out? I mean, we talked about this for three years. I told you this was going to happen. And I love this. Jesus knows they're doubting, not just because of their body language. He knows their heart, the center. Jesus says, okay, you're doubting. Fair, all good. I mean, I, I get it. This is pretty epic. We've seen some crazy things before, but this t- tops everything. So listen, look at my hands and look at my feet. It's, it's me. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bone, as you see. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, this is it. He's the same person they knew before, but now physically raised from the dead. His hand and feet have the marks of murder, but all the other torture marks are gone. Only his hands and feet still are marked, but those marks have no power. They're now a sign of victory over death, sin, and the demonic. And then this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, verse 41. And well, they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. He asked them, got anything to eat? Now, (laughs) They did not believe. I preached this a few Easter's ago. They did not believe because of joy. This is too good to be true. I mean, I literally know this is happening, that Jesus is right in front of me right now, but I, I just can't process it. I mean, I'm so excited and so joyful and, and so amazed. It's like I need, I, I need to like, I need to stop this. I need to get a hold of myself. How interesting that true joy, that authentic knowing, can be the grounding of no faith because of being jaded, over-analytical, and over-controlling. They could not even trust their own senses. How true of many of us who here are here week after week, or many of you visiting online. But the point is this. Fact and experience itself is never enough when it comes to us and God. We need divine help to get it every single time. So Jesus says, I'm a little hungry. I mean, anyone got some food? I'm here to help you. Ghosts don't eat. So what happens next? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. Can you imagine handing it to him? And he took it and ate it in their presence. Can you go, oh my goodness, they're probably looking, thinking he's a ghost. Where's where's the piece of fish going to drop out? And it doesn't drop out. He's eating. See, resurrection deals with three wrong ideas. Jesus is not resuscitated like he never really died. No, he was dead and now he's alive. He's not some weird cadaver where some other spirit has taken him over and he's like a zombie. No. Nor is the resurrection spiritual alone. That suddenly he's freed from his body. No, no. It's the same guy. He's physically back from the dead. He's saying by just being there, by his words, by his actions, it's me, everyone. Their lockdown and their fear is removed by his presence in their fear and in their lockdown. Well, there's one last person missing from all these Easter encounters. It's one of the 11. It's Thomas. And it says in John 20, 25, the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Thomas says, I don't believe you, Peter. I don't believe you, John. I don't believe any of you. And then he says in verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. 
I love Thomas. Thomas demands both visual and tactile proof before he's believed in any such story. I love when one person said, no skepticism could be more thoroughgoing than this. And it is perhaps worth noting that no one else in the New Testament makes demands like this before believing. I want to see. I want to touch. It's like Thomas speaks for the for all of us, the whole world. This is too good to be true. Life after death, physical resurrection, forgiveness of sins, hope beyond the mundane, all the things that we humans are primordially fearful of really overcome. Oh, and don't misunderstand Thomas's cry. It's not just rooted in unbelief or modern skepticism. It's not just scientific concrete prove it or I'm out. This is also deeply emotional. It's hopelessness. His doubt is rooted partly in pain, then worked out in facts. By the way, almost every skeptical person I have ever met or unbelieving person I have met, they can partially trace that unbelief back to unmet expectations, unmet dreams, unmet perception of being let down by God or church or knowledge or others. Well, a whole week passes. And it says in verse 26, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The doors are locked a week later because they're still wanted men. So they're now in their second lockdown. And Jesus comes again physically into the room in a divine way and deals with fear by pronouncing peace. Then knowing all that Thomas had said, And all that Thomas had believed in his heart, he looks at his friend. His hurt, confused, angry, let down friend. And in grace and kindness and mercy, he says to Thomas, Hey Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. It's okay, Thomas, it's me. You can put your confidence in me. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to let you down. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm here. I'm real. I'm on the move. Now, Thomas faces what to do, just like some of you at this moment. Act or run. Christian uh, uh, belief or unbelief. See, Thomas is maybe not as much of a skeptic as he thought. At the sight of Jesus, his friend, his teacher, all his doubts and questions left to the point where the tests he had set up to disprove the idea of resurrection, make fool of his former friends, vanish. And he cries out in verse 28, my Lord and my God. Shame and regret now moves to reverence and worship. Now, just hold on for a sec. Let's pause here. Thomas says, my God, what a huge leap of faith. Thomas is a Jewish man, Orthodox Jewish. He's along, he's among 10 other Jewish people. And of course, Jews believe there's only one God, one true living God. And Thomas basically says, you're Yahweh, you're Elohim, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And this is wrong, and this is blasphemy, and this is, uh, this is evil, unless, of course, it's true. Now, if Jesus needed to say, whoa, 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 Thomas, too far, man. I mean, I know I'm risen from the dead, but I'm not God. Let me redirect you. I'm something else. He would have done it here. Instead, Jesus meets Thomas's words with approval. Verse 29, Jesus told him, because you have seen me and you've believed, yes, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So he says, Thomas, you're right. I am who you're claiming. But then he talks about all of us. At this moment, 
on the second Sunday after Easter. There's not a church building in the world. The name Christian has not even been used as an insult yet. There's not a pastor, an elder, a bishop to be found. The cross is still a terrible instrument of death. It has not been redeemed as a symbol of life. There's only a few dozen people that really believe. And yet Jesus says there is a great blessing coming to the world and the world will never be the same. Well, it ends like this in verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't even recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. What does it mean to believe on someone, let alone believe on Jesus? Does it mean you have warm feelings for him? Or does it mean you believe, oh yeah, some guy named Jesus existed? No, 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 no. You've got to acknowledge truth is truth. Yes, that's a historical fact. But to believe means to trust. To believe means to rely upon. To believe means to derive confidence in someone. So if you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, you're actually saying, I've met him. I know him. I trust him. I've placed my complete confidence in him. Everything I know about this life, whatever happens at my death and after death depends on Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe. And what are you called to believe in? That Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God. He died for your sins and my sins. He actually physically rose from the dead and he clears a path back to God so we can have eternal life. That you might have life in his name. Not just a set of beliefs, not just a set of morals, a personal relationship. Forgiveness, life, purpose, fulfillment, eternal life, and resurrection like him through Jesus alone. That's the Easter story. To all of you who are joining as guests today, let let me just say this to you. Or maybe you're not a guest. Maybe you've been coming for years or months. Are you Mary, marked by loss and grief? Jesus can replace it with joy. Are you the disciples? Are you marked by fear? Always trying to control yourself and family and life and job. You're always either in fear and lockdown or trying to control the situation. You know, Jesus can provide peace to replace all of that. Are you Thomas, cynical, self-made, self-reliant, untrusting? Jesus can replace that with hope and joy. Years later, one of our enemies, a guy named Saul, who radically meets Jesus and becomes one of our greatest leaders, wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.28. This is for you who are seekers and skeptics and, and you from other faiths. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might uh, become the righteousness of God. If you have never believed on Jesus Christ, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, now in this moment you've heard the good news, whether you're Mary or Thomas or the disciples, and now I'm going to invite you right now, wherever you might be, you might be listening in a car, you might be watching in a living room or somewhere, wherever you are in the world, I want you to pray this prayer. If you've never crossed the line of faith, you say, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I have done wrong in my life against you, myself, and others. I ask your forgiveness and now turn from everything I know that is wrong. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on a cross for me to set me free from my sins. Thank you that you're risen from the dead. Please come into my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit and to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this Easter. 
Uh, amen. Now, I know many, many, many of us who are listening right now on this Easter Sunday morning, we are Christians. And here's all I want to say. I know it's been a difficult year. I know it's been a brutal year. I know things are not clear yet. But I want to reassure you today that we have great hope because Jesus is risen from the dead. And so like I say every year, this Easter, we join the global church and those who are already in the presence of Jesus. And we, without shame, at Sanctus Church, we proclaim that Jesus was a real person rooted in history. Jesus did suffer. Jesus has physically risen from the dead. And in Jesus's name, we declare freedom through repentance and we experience forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sins and freedom and joy are ours. We declare that no matter what happens to us in this coming year, we know that our physical resurrection is guaranteed and our troubles are only momentary. And so I end this Easter message by declaring this in a time of pandemic. But I declare this because it's true. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we just take a moment and we want to pause and we say, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we worship you. Thank you, Jesus, you died. Thank you that you rested on Saturday. And thank you on, on this Sunday that you were risen from the dead. Thank you that we have hope, the forgiveness of sins. And your promise is that no matter when we face death, we will physically be resurrected to you. Would you now, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to every person who's a Christian listening to give them hope in this hopeless time. Give us peace in this distraught time. Give us joy in this dark time and help us to be people of resurrection. Jesus, thank you that you're risen, that you're risen indeed. And we all sit together, amen. Mm -hmm.